one of the things that we lose sight of is that there is so much static in our world. There's, the signal is coming to you from all sides. You know, WhatsApp messages, Pinterest, Instagram. There's, you know, people are keeping their Facebook profile, the LinkedIn profile, the this, the that. And we are not, we're not trained. And in, there's nowhere in our culture that tells us that, you know, as the first thing you must do is have a lot of time to be, to do some deep introspection as a leader about your style, about your strengths, about your capabilities, about your weaknesses, about, you know, understanding, you know, where you, and I think that um, that ability, I think leaders for any, in any situation have to do, but more so in a business that is undergoing profound change. Hi everyone, I'm Pankaj Mishra and you are listening to the Outliers podcast. It's a podcast, a series of conversations with outliers. I'm really excited to be sitting with one of them, uh, William Bissell, who is now the vice chairman of Fab India. Uh, it's a brand that's touched all of us. William, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Thank you, Pankaj. It's a pleasure to be here. Why do I think you are an outlier? I remember a conversation with uh, Prakash Palsathi at Premji Invest a few years ago. And then with a bunch of people in the industry who talked about you as someone who combines the social good uh, with a profit-making machinery uh, amazingly well. And I always wondered about it because as a consumer, Fab India came across as a uh, you know, very, very high-end premium brand, of course, uh, a great products. But I always wondered what goes inside it. Uh, or to what end? And so I became more inquisitive, and that's why I've been meaning to sit down with you, William, and have this conversation. I think that, I mean, there are, there are two views of, of business as we enter, as, we, as the 21st century unfolds. Uh, one view of business is it's the more conventional view, which is that it is there to serve its shareholders. And you serve your shareholders by generating ever greater profits, uh, generating ever greater dividends and ever greater valuation. So that's the conventional view of business. And it held sway for a long time. I think that um, with the kind of global crises we're facing in terms of the environment, in terms of the role of business, in terms of the size of businesses, there is a groundswell um, of feeling that, that business needs to be just more than something that serves the interest of its shareholders. And I've always believed that a long-term business, a business that wants to be in existence for a longer time, has to have a higher purpose. Because if its purpose is merely to identify gaps in the market where uh, demand is not met by supply and, and provide a product to address that gap and make money, um, and charge whatever the market will bear and, and give the profits to its shareholders. I mean, that, to me, is a very restrictive view of doing business in the 21st century. Mm. So I felt that, you know, you, uh, in a business that needs to have a deeper, you know, if you want to anchor the business, you have to stand for something. I mean, otherwise you're just in the business of um, addressing a need um, or creating a need where none existed. Often businesses do that. But there is a yearning in people that businesses should do much more than that. And Because business has become such a powerful force. 
uh, it shapes so much in our lives that that if businesses were to look at their role differently, I think that would lead to businesses lasting for much longer and having stronger foundations. So we've always been, you know, I inherited this legacy from the way my father built the company at when he was running Fab India before I got involved, it was largely an export company. I mean, my contribution in a way to the business has been to make it a retail company and to build an Indian brand, a brand that, you know, a lot of people in the country feel that it's a brand that represents a lot that they love about India. Very interesting to look at it just through lens because a lot of time is spent on how to create build to last companies. And then what you are saying is looking at through this lens. Very interesting. Let's start from the start, uh, William. Uh, how was it growing up? Uh, what were the things that you believe uh, helped you shape uh, you know, the life and business around you as you grew up? What, how was it growing up? What were the things that you remember the most? What were the things that influenced your life and career the most? Uh, so I was very aware, you know, I, as, as a child, I used to travel with my father a lot into rural areas. And we didn't go as tourists because we had a kind of purpose. I mean, he would often go visiting units. I remember trips that we took to small places where we would see the product being produced. Um, it was very, uh, it was an illumination for me into the country. Because if I didn't have that, my experience of India would have been restricted to the center of Delhi, to the affluent neighborhoods of Delhi, to affluent families, to a, you know, I went to a very good school in Delhi where most of the kids were from privileged backgrounds. So that would have been my experience of India and then maybe trips to Goa and all as a tourist. But because of what my father did in his work and because he took me a lot to see, even during school, I missed a lot of school, I developed, you know, knowledge and appreciation for what, you know, the incredible diversity and what happened in the country and and you know, it was also at a time when um, we traveled a lot by train. We saw, you know, huge, and we traveled all over the country. And there were units and small producers, and it gave me a real appreciation of, of what the incredible skill and the diversity in the country. William, can you help us understand the idea of Fab India from the time you were growing up to around the time perhaps when, I don't know if you redefined it, Give us a sense of the core idea of Fab India. Why does it exist? Well, there were two things. What I inherited from my father and from his vision was the sense that Fab India was a company that was uh, existed to um, provide a market for the crafts of India, for the artisanal work of India, and to look at. And there was a philosophy behind that: was that we worked with small artisan groups. We worked with micro-entrepreneurs. We worked with all kinds of social and NGO uh, types of organizations that worked with artisans. So that was one aspect. The other thing that I think we've done in the last 20 years is made it about a lifestyle. So we have converted that core ideology of working with the craftspeople, of providing a market for the diverse skills and crafts and traditions of the country into a lifestyle brand. And I think that has been, I think, one of our greatest achievements to, to convert a philosophy into a brand and keep the brand true to the philosophy. So the, the idea that, that you, you, we are a lifestyle, so we're not a fashion brand, we're not on trend, we're not 
We are about a particular kind of lifestyle. So if you believe in that lifestyle, then we are sort of your go-to brand. We hope to be your go-to brand for that lifestyle. So take us through the building blocks when it comes to creating this brand itself as, as we know it or as you built it. When we set out to build a brand, I remember it was the year was 19, it was between 1996 and 2000 that the idea of setting up a brand had, you know, become a very, something that I, I decided I really wanted to focus my energies on. I realized there were three things I realized. One is that as countries evolve, especially strong countries with strong cultural traditions, brands can represent those cultural traditions. There was a brand that I had looked at very closely in Australia called Country Roads. It really represented a kind of the Aussie spirit. There were other brands in America like L.L. Bean and all that rep represented something about America's culture and its traditions. And all. So I felt that India needed a brand like that. I felt that the country, I felt that its people matured and, and, and understood and, and became more confident, became more self-confident about their own country, their own culture. One of the ways to express that self-confidence was through a brand. So that was one. The second um, aspect was that um, the country was making a profound shift from unorganized to organized retail. So earlier people bought things that, you know, their darzi made, their local tailor or whatever. And then, then they were making that shift from buying non-branded products made in, in the cottage industries and small-scale industries to buying you know, branded products. And I felt that there, there was a real, there would be a real desire in the future for a brand that spoke of people's Indianness. And, and then I felt the third thing was to provide a brand that was a platform to celebrate India. You know, so the third thing is that you celebrate Indian traditions, Indian knowledge, you know, and that was the third aspect of it. So it was built consciously around these three aspects. Very interesting. And one of the things I've noticed, again, from outside or from the conversations that I, I noticed is the whole community of artisans. What role has that community played in this journey? And what is the playbook like? How do you create that inclusiveness uh, that you talked about? Was it the term that you used some time back was inclusive capitalism or something like that, right? What, tell us about that playbook with, with the community of artisans. So, I mean, I think one of our successes and focus areas has been that we've we really worked with um, the micro-entrepreneur, small artisan often, who's who's created a small business, maybe employing 10 to 20 people in his native place, you know, which could be a small uh, town or a village. Um, and we really helped link that producer with the market. So what happens is it's that producer, us and the market. And so we, because we run the front end where we are in touch with the end consumer, we buy from that producer. So our objective has been to encourage that producer. We don't always succeed in doing this, but our objective has always been to encourage that producer to stay true to their craft form, to what they produce, to give them some design assistance, to give them advances, financing, working capital if necessary, and help give them sustainable work. Now that's been our biggest challenge, how to, because the market is fluctuates a lot. So how do you, in a, in a market like that, provide a producer with with sustainable orders that 
so that his unit runs because you know to efficiency comes from regular work you know so the unit is so you don't have periods where you have work and then you don't have work and you have work and you don't have work and so it's uh, and recently with the advent of e-commerce and and all the choices consumers have it's become a very fickle industry and craft needs much more solid sustainable demand you know so it's really about you know how to balance that how do you do that is that something that keeps you awake every day but what is it like how do you solve that well the challenge for us is how to create more consistent buying patterns and one of the things we've invested heavily in and we are in july we will have our first trial of our pilots uh, on machine learning and artificial intelligence and the idea is that we are going to move away from from the concept that you make these trend driven collections and we move to more consistent long term products and hopefully we have currently we're running about 368000 sku's which is too many items for to be humanly you know looked at in in terms of uh, crunching the data so we introducing a very high tech way of using machine learning and artificial intelligence to look at ordering reordering distribution redistribution and finally how to exit product that is slow selling um and at the same time when we talk about ordering and reordering the tech engine connects with all our producers so if you have a small producer in a town like madhya pradesh called say maheshwar the guy on his phone will be able to get a daily update of orders Uh, to see the items and let's say he supplied 6 sks to fab india out of 368000 he will get knowledge of his 6 sks every day and he will also receive orders every day wow is is that a your own solution or you brought it from somewhere else this, the tech the code it's tech. a solution which we have uh, grown in fab india uh, we're working with external tech providers to make it happen but the idea is that the solution is what we are growing with in fab india so the idea is that what helps the producer in in the town of maheshwar is that he must get regular work so his looms are busy if his looms are busy he gets paid on time and he gets paid a fair wage then he will pay his artisans a fair wage and basically the cycle will continue if he gets irregular work then his artisans leave they go into other professions they will gravitate towards jobs like a security guard which pay them a monthly income and not one where one month they have work and one month they don't because that is profoundly very disruptive to the process so the idea is to smoothen out that cycle by connecting the producer to the to the actual what is happening in terms of sales and if he sees he has 6 sku's and two are doing very well and two are doing mediocre and two are doing poorly he will see the orders coming in and he will then actually also start resampling new product so that he knows after a while he will understand more and more what the market is and so the idea is if you have a couple of thousand producers and they are all focusing on the 10 or 15 sku's that they produce they will be a much better judge of understanding what consumer demand is looking for then a consolidated aggregator like we are who's actually got th- hundreds of thousands of sqs to track and things that's fascinating yeah. and it's quite a complex problem to yeah. solve yeah uh, one of the things that i was really keen to understand from you william is the culture at fab india you know what is it like working at fab india how do you build a culture that also lasts like you're talking about built to last as a company what 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 do you do? What's the playbook there? 
So I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think culture is increasingly uh, going to be one of the important aspects of how you how a company actually achieves its you know greater purpose. And I think for a lot of young people, especially young people who have opportunities, culture is going to be what binds them to an organization. If they feel there's nothing in it, they have many many opportunities. In the old days, people didn't have opportunities, so you stayed because you had no choice. Today, when you have a youngster with skills, he knows he can put his CV out on Naukri.com, he'll get offers, LinkedIn, move ahead and all that. So culture becomes very important because one is it, it gives the, you know, it gives the organization its long-term future. And the other is it holds people in a particular way, you know, culture. If you, so when I, when I joined Fab India, it was a very committed team because everybody, the ideology was really deep. People really understood our higher purpose, what we were trying to do. You know the why of our business, as Simon Shrek says in that famous video. I mean, they everybody got the why. As we grew, that weakened, and it's one of my sort of goals for the next few years is to strengthen that culture as we grow into a larger organization. So you know, when you're, you know, ten thousand people, then it's harder to. How do you make sure that a sense of that culture permeates through the organization? That people get it. They they really. They understand what they're doing, why it's important, why it makes a difference. I think when we were a very small organization, when I joined, I mean, we basically sat in a few rooms and, and people shared stories of the producer they were working with. And we traveled to these remote areas. I remember once traveling really to a really remote area. We slept in the dark bungalow. There were no beds, nothing. I slept on the table. Uh, but you really got a sense of the work we were doing. You were the only source of employment in that entire community. And, and you really felt you came away from a visit like that thinking, wow, this work is really important. It's preserving something that otherwise would die out. It's providing meaningful employment. It's keeping people in rural areas rather than those people coming to the cities as workers, as, you know, as daily wage laborers and also, you know, it was, um, you know, one of the, really defining moments for me was when we were, we got a very large order. Uh, that was, of course, this story I told you about was in Madhya Pradesh. But another case, we got a very large order to make a kind of flat woven cotton dari in Rajasthan. And um, when we arrived at the one of the production places, they said, Yaha pe to, I mean, there are very few weavers left here. Sub, they're all doing road construction work. So I remember one of the defining memories for me is that we had to, we needed more looms. We had this big order. So we went to a project where the men and women were working on a road construction, breaking stones to put to lay before they put the tar on the road. You know. mm -hmm. And I remember telling them that you know there was an order and this would be the rate per square foot that was paid to them and all. And their eyes lit up. And uh, a few weeks later, all those people had left that you know construction work, which was unskilled, and they were highly skilled. I mean, some of these craftsmen were really, really skilled. And they went back, they resurrected their looms, their looms at all. They opened their looms and we started. And it was a source of great, you know, pride and joy to see that, you know, uh, they had come back and done that. And that, that was, you know, and, and our teams really, really understood that. I, I remember telling people that, you know, you must, the skilled craftsmen, many of them have gone on to other occupations, gone to construction as daily wage laborers and also let's try to bring them back to do what their skills are, what they're trained in. I remember when we when we pioneered, when we revived a tradition of Ajrak, which was all about to die out. Um, you know, it, it was a matter of great pride that, you know, we did this, we caught it in time because had we been five years later, the tradition would have died out. And once it dies out, it's impossible to resurrect.
it's like a species of, of wildlife. You know, once you kill the species, you can't resurrect it. Yeah. You can't genetically engineer it and create the great dodo or the great Indian bustard or whatever. Once they're gone, they're gone. So it really felt like that kind of pioneering work. And that gave a very strong impetus to, you know, it created a very strong culture within the company. We need to figure out as we grow bigger how we bring that culture back. Fascinating, Milan. Like what forms the core building block of the culture is, is amazing. Take me through this transition as well. When, when, you, when you came in to join Fab India, I think your, your father had passed away a year before. 99 is when you took over around that time. Yeah. And then you had a journey and you are not an MD now. So you, you, you're also bringing leaders from outside or you know, homegrown leaders. How are these tra transitions? So what I'm trying to understand is in entrepreneurship, a lot of time people are talking of letting it go. Like at different stages of the company, you need different people. How do you, not necessarily step back, but how do you work with these new leaders? What went inside these transitions in your career? I was peripherally involved with the business till 1998. 1993 was my father fell ill. And then I got a little more involved with the business. But I had my own business where I worked with leather workers and dari weavers and all. And, I, uh, and uh, so I became MD in 1999 and I was MD till 2018. Um, and that was a period when I understood that the export business we were in was going to die and we needed to, you know, refocus our business, what we were going to do next. Because I, th I could see that we were in a kind of sunset phase uh, and that there wouldn't be much of a future for the export business. I could see what was happening in Europe, in America. And I understood that, um, you know, the products that we produced for a variety of reasons were uh, our margins were going to shrink and it was not going to be a good business to be in. So I had to sort of re, uh, reorient, reinvent. We had to reinvent ourselves. So we reinvented ourselves as a retail business. Now, today we're at a point again where there's another moment has come where the business needs to reinvent itself because with the onslaught of e-commerce and the digital, um, the business has to really find its new feet. How do we how do we go forward from where we are? What are the what how do we because the traditional business of opening a store, which is and expecting customers to walk in and spend money, uh, and you put stuff on shelves and and you have uh, you know relatively um, low paid staff who are f assisting the customers at the front end. That was the traditional model of retail. That model has died. It's died in the West and it's going to die in India in about five to seven years. So. We have to reinvent ourselves. And so in the last two years, and one of the reasons I decided not to be MD anymore was because I needed to have the time to rethink about what our future direction was going to be. And I felt that if we were focusing entirely on, you know, running a day-to-day -day retail business, I, I wouldn't be able to reimagine where we needed to go. So that's what I've been doing for the last two years. And... I'm glad I took that time because um, uh, we really need to, we have started the move to turn Fab India from a, a, a retail business, a commodity retail business to a very different kind of business. This journey with Fab India so far, uh, 
it's all, it, it's been an entrepreneurial journey for you because you had the free you know freedom to change things at different points in time what has that meant for you as a person uh, are there any particular learnings uh, from from this journey that did they change you as a person did they change anything in particular uh, the way you look at things has that what has that meant for you personally as an individual you know the only the only one kind of fact that is true about leadership is that it's a very self-reflective process it's a process where you kind of have to have a high degree of mindfulness self-awareness it's a process by which you have to sit back and be very introspective reflective that is leadership you know true leadership and and i think that one of the things that we um lose sight of is that there is so much static in our world there's the signal is coming to you from all sides you know whatsapp messages pinterest instagram this you know people are keeping their facebook profile the linkedin profile this that 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 this kind of and we are not we're not trained and in, there's nowhere in our culture that tells us that you know as the first thing you must do is have a lot of time to be to do some deep introspection as a leader about your style about your strengths about your capabilities about your weaknesses about you know an understanding you know where you and i think that um that ability i think leaders for any in any situation have to do but more so in a business that is undergoing profound change because if you don't take the time out to think So you could say like last week I I could say I had a wasted week because I did nothing. I just looked at a piece of paper on my table for a couple of hours a day, not the whole day, but a couple of hours a day and I scribbled on it and I threw it away and then I scribbled on it and I threw it away and then so my output in terms of what's expected was very low. I mean I had I had nothing. I just had a waste paper basket full of papers and I wrote some things on my computer which I later deleted because I didn't think they were quite there. But it is that process which you need that time you need to have you need to just as a leader especially in an industry that is undergoing rapid transformation you need to have the time to be self reflective and think deeply about the future and where it's going and what it's going to do so i've been trying to take a lot of time out every day just to do that this is again going back to uh, you know when when you you know crossing the chasm kind of a thing when your existing business gets cannibalized but you have to think through the future how do you combine this sense of futurism with the current battles uh, i don't know is that an art science or no i think that in any situation you have to look at what are the fundamentals you know it's it's like the wind direction is changing now you can either say i'm going to still sail on the old direction put my sail and the sail after a while as the wind direction begins to change the sail will not have that energy in it the energy will not be pushing the sail it's the wind that pushes the sail the sail pushes the boat so as the wind direction changes you have to say okay i need to change this my sail and my sail needs to be flexible enough to orient itself to the new wind direction so a good sailors don't sail in a straight line they sail on a tack so they take the wind and they always are sailing in an angle it's like you know how you cross a river with a strong current is you don't try to swim against the current or swim perpendicular to the current you try to swim at an angle to the current so you use the energy of the current because actually your job is to go from one bank to the other across the river but you don't want to swim either perpendicular to the current or against the current you can actually use the current to move you so there is a profound change in that current in that wind direction and we need to figure out now 
one of the things that everybody said is they become an e-commerce company. I said, look, firstly, it's not so easy for us. Secondly, I said, look deeply at e-commerce in India. It is a field where there is a huge number of players. They're all burning up massive amounts of investor money on getting eyeballs and, you know, improving their rankings and doing all this and buying the keywords and doing that, all of which is good, but it's really a race to the bottom. I mean, when we started buying keywords like kurta and cotton kurta and all, they cost nothing. Today, they're very expensive. So I said that, and when you look at the essential model, the consumers are flocking to where they're getting the best prices. You know, unless it's a product that can't be, it's not easily available. For most other products, it's they're going for the best prices. And I said with web crawlers, it'll make it even easier because you put kurta and you'll get 16 brands and you'll see a kurta from 1600 to 300. And if you just want to, you know, so I said that it's not for us. It's not, and I don't see a future. You know, we are not investor funded. We don't have endless deep pockets. We don't want to burn, you know, have a loss leader model where you, you know, build market share and take huge losses. In hindsight, it's turned out that that view was correct because as funding is now beginning to dry out, many e-commerce companies are either becoming brick and mortar retailers or they're, desp or they're seeing that with the reduction in their marketing spend, their actual number of site visits, conversions, everything else is all their indicators are now you know, falling steeply. So it's, it's, a, it's a business where you constantly have to encourage recall by advertising. So it's a very high variable cost model. Um, so for the time being, it seems like, I mean, for players with unlimited sums of money uh, and with very high name recall, it's okay. It's a good place to be. But for us, no. So what we've tried to do is we've tried to look at going into another area of experiential retail and seeing how that will be, how experiential retail will be. Because experiences are something that, you know, I look at people, the number of people traveling around the world to go to tourism. You look at every tourist destination in the world, it's, in, it's recording at, at least 15% CAGR in terms of number of visitors. Yeah. Cities like Amsterdam today are trying to discourage tourists from coming. Everything has become, I mean, Rome is flooded. I mean, every... I went to a place in Bhutan, which I thought was quite, you know, not a... I mean, there were tour buses and buses, and even in Bhutan. So exp people are craving experiences. They're going to new and new. They're trying to do new experiences. So I said, how do we make retail from uh, a sale of a good to a sale of a service, and beyond the sale of a service to the sale of an experience? Mm -hmm. So that is what... That's the trajectory along which, you know, my thinking has been in where I've been trying to position the company. Final couple of questions. Uh, how do you stay true to this, your own first principles? Like what you just said, it illustrated this brilliantly, right? Not getting tempted to do an e-commerce because it's fashionable, mainstream. At different points in time, you would have had all kinds of distractions and temptations. But how do you stay true? How do you stay wedded to this, your own first principle? I don't know if there's a playbook for that, but how do you do that? Like, why won't you do what is there playing on? What do you tell yourself? And, and what do you tell the team? What I tell the team is to be, be flexible in your thinking about approaches. And also we need to... I mean, we, we need to look at 
business is something that is in a state of very fast evolution right now. And we need to be very clear about why we're doing certain things. Don't do them because it's just habit. In the past you did in the past, you do in the future. Think very clearly about why you're doing it. And I think that the challenge is going to be that, see the fundamentals, human fundamentals aren't going to change. We have a desire to communicate. So everybody wants a cell phone. Then when you had a cell phone, you had a smartphone. Why? Because smartphones take communication to a different level. They, they have video, they have voice, they have pictures, they have images, you can share images, you can do, it makes for a much richer experience. Now, it addresses a fundamental human need. There's a fundamental human need, the more you alienate people with, with e-commerce, you can sit in your room and not meet everybody. You can order your food from Zomato, you can order your products that you need for your house from Grofers or Big Basket. You don't need to see anybody, you don't need to interact. But there's a fundamental human need we have to interact, to be in places where other people are, to do things, to meet, to congregate, to do. So these fundamental human needs are not gonna go away. So how do you build a business around a fundamental human need? A fundamental human need, a lot of women have the need to look nice to wear nice clothes, to look nice. So that's a fundamental need. So the fashion industry addresses those needs in some way. So I'm, when, I, when you go back to think about the first principles, for me the first principles is what are, what are tomorrow's consumers going to want? They want to be connected. They want to be, they want to be appreciated. They want to be supported. They want time-saving things. But yet they want experiences because if they didn't want experiences, why would you go to a restaurant? You can today order the restaurant food at home. That should mean that everybody, if you like a particular dish made in a restaurant, you eat it at home. Now, there's a lot of that happening, but there's also the experience of going out, you know, of meeting, of being in a place with lots of other people and music and, you know, people want that, they crave that. So you need to build businesses along what I call fundamental human needs, because the further away you get from those fundamental human needs, in a way, the weaker your business is. Final question, William. Uh, on this journey so far, have there been instances when things didn't work out uh, or if you know uh, what have been some of the failure lessons for you is from things that didn't work out you know our biggest failure in a way was um, an acquisition we made about 10 years ago a company a UK based company called East uh, and it was a really big lesson because we went into a market we didn't know we spent a lot of money we underestimated what it would cost to acquire a brand in the UK and what it would cost to run it. We underestimated how different the UK retail market was from our market. They were a saturated market. We were still a market where there was a lot of growth potential. Um, it was a market we didn't know at all. It was a market where fashion was getting increasingly fickle, where e-commerce was dominating, where, and we, were, uh, we bought a high street retailer, where we just, uh, and I think it was done, um, and I think that mistake taught us something, which is that we had come out of a time where there was a big differential. Businesses in India were being valued at much higher multiples than businesses in the UK. So it seemed like that business was relatively cheap because if we were running at an EBITDA multiple of 30, they were running an EBITDA multiple of five. So you know, if they made a hundred thousand pounds of profit, they got five hundred thousand pounds of valuation. If we made a hundred thousand pounds of profit, we got a three million pound valuation. So we looked like it looked like it was, you know, and you know the example that many people gave us, which was, you know, you 
one, a very wise person once told me, one of our board members, that structuring doesn't make a good deal bad. What a lot of people told us that they said, you know, you can, uh, if you take over their small profits and you bring them, their profits will get marked up at your valuation multiple. And I realized the biggest lesson for me is that that's all structuring. Structuring doesn't make a good, a bad deal good. It just, you know, it's like a kind of form of window dressing. So all those arguments were superfluous because the biggest thing I learned is return on management time, more than return on capital. More. And what it did was it distracted us at a time when we should have been much, much more focused. Fortunately, one learned from this mistake and we, we exited it. We, we lost money and we said, okay, let's let this be a learning experience. You know, an expensive learning experience, but, but let us not put more good money after bad. So that business shut down and um, yeah, so that was a very big learning. Uh, other than that, I don't think we've made too many mistakes. We've been very, very uh, careful. You know, it was a time when there was a kind of euphoria in the market. We thought we could, you know, everybody said your valuation's here today, there tomorrow, it'll keep increasing. You take this acquisition, your valuation will increase by 50%, then it'll cost you nothing because... You, look, you know, it was, we did it for all the wrong reasons. When I look back on it, we did it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, but it's still valuable because you learn from it. Yeah, it's valuable when you learn from it. That's what I keep telling myself. <laughs> okay, final, final question, William. What does legacy mean to you? I mean, I don't know, 100 years down the line. Do you think about it? I don't think about legacy at all. It's not something, I think that the the more closer your business is to the consumer fundamentals in the case of our business the so there are three things that i think we have to bear in mind as a business one is we need to embrace technology because every business is going to be a tech business it'll be a tech business and whatever else it'll be a tech business and an airline business it'll be a tech business and a retail business whatever the second thing we need to never lose sight of is that we as as for fab india the first example is more a generic thing that all businesses. The second is that we have an opportunity to become, you know, one of India's most trusted brands. And I think we need to constantly earn and retain consumer trust. Earning it is hard, retaining it is even harder. And, you know, there, if that informs your business philosophy, like we're investing in a fantastic lab, we're doing things, we're investing in all kinds of things because we really want to keep the consumer trust. Um, in an age where people are being told all kinds of half-truths and non-truths, um, I think it becomes very important to do that. And as a legacy project, I think that can be seen as one of the things that I would, I would want to carry on at Fab India. That's what a legacy is all about. And lastly, I think we need to really focus on making sure that our, our purpose, our vision, our mission, and our purpose are central and and we never lose sight of the changing consumer so you you're very you anchor your planning your thoughts your future strategies especially strategies need to be really deeply connected to the fundamental needs of consumers and how they express they don't change they express themselves in different ways mm. the need to connect doesn't change in the old days in italy you came to the piazza or you came to the chapel or whatever in an indian village you came so the fundamental need to connect, to meet in Goan houses, you have that area where people used to sit when they were available to meet other people. Those fundamental needs don't change, but they express themselves in different ways. So we need to be 
alive and focused on how they express themselves and make sure we don't lose sight of that. I think if we can do these three things well, I think the business's future is in good hands. Great film. It was amazing talking to you and Godspeed with everything. Thank you Thank very you. much, Pankaj. I really enjoyed it. Yes, likewise. <laughs>